Uh, good morning, church. Good morning, church. That's yeah, okay. You guys, I've heard you talk already. I know you can do it. Um, my name is Tyler Clements. Uh, Clay was correct. That's my name. I'm the director of youth ministries here. I direct music as well. Um, I've been here for quite a while, so uh, I have the, the pleasure, the joy of being able to preach this morning in Pastor Boomer's absence, and so uh, we'll get into Luke 8 uh, here in a second. But um, So if you want to turn there, that's fine, in your paper Bibles preferably, but if you have a device, I'll allow it. Um, Luke 8 is where we'll be, but I want you to think about this question. Where were you, or I should say, what were you up to 12 years ago? So 2011, what did your life look like in 2011? We'll take a little trip back here, time capsule. In the year 2011 in the world, we witnessed the release of a popular book series called The Hunger Games. There was also in that year a massive earthquake that hit Japan, which triggered a destructive tsunami. Apple's co-founder Steve Jobs died in 2011, and that was also the year that U.S. forces killed Osama bin Laden. So a lot's happened in the past 12 years. As I think about my own life, um, you know, I've been the youth director here at Grace for six years in 2011, my wife Lindsay and I had at the time an eight-year-old, a six-year-old uh, boys, and we had four-year-old and one-year-old daughters, and I don't know how we survived those years. Um, in fact, some of you are in that stage right now, and I don't know how you're surviving, um, but let me encourage you, I'm still alive. Um, you know, I just started taking seminary classes a couple years before that in 2011. I mean, things were very different in my life, and I'm sure as you think about your life, it's also very different as well. You've probably changed jobs. Maybe you've had some massive changes in your family. Uh, maybe you've just simply felt 12 years of aging, right? Now, I know it's a surprise, but I can't dunk a basketball as easily as I could have in 2011, and that somehow my small group guys think I can just get a basketball before youth group and just throw it down. But I need like the pressure, the temperature's gotta be right, I've gotta stretch for like 30 minutes, like things have changed in 12 years. And the reason I ask that, the reason I considered, want us to consider that is because in our text today, this morning, there, uh, there are two people that share a similar 12-year history. One is a little girl who after 12 years uh, of life had gotten sick and was on the edge of death. And the other is a woman who had suffered a disease for 12 years and was at the edge of losing all hope. And so, uh, as we come to Luke 8, let me pray um, for God's help. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would bring understanding and encouragement and conviction and hope, for you are alive and your word is alive. Thank you that we have your word before us today. Cause us to delight in it and to never take it for granted. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So Luke 8, uh, verses 40 through 56, the last part of this chapter. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? 
When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounding, uh, surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Together we respond with, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this morning, I have three words that will frame our look at this passage. So for those of you keeping notes, taking track at home, here you go. Three words, simple words, all start with the letter D. There you go. Desperation is the first word. Drama is the second word. And deliverance is the third word. Desperation in the face of sickness and death the drama of life in a world that's filled with sin, and deliverance by a powerful and compassionate Savior. See, the same story that we just read is told in the two other synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark. And despite the uniqueness of each account, um, some accounts leave out particular details that others put in. But one thing is true in all three accounts, and that is this timeline of how this whole scenario happens. The request by Jairus to come to the house, being interrupted by this healing of a bleeding woman in the crowd. And interruptions happen a lot in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus never seems to be in a hurry, um, which is really comforting for those of us who live such fast-paced lives and we're all about speed and efficiency, right? None of the interruptions seem to phase Jesus. He never loses cool, he never seems at a loss for words, he never seems to not know what to do. One commentator put it this way, what we would call an interruption is for him, for Jesus, a springboard or a takeoff point for the utterance of a great saying, or as here, for the performance of a marvelous deed, revealing his power, wisdom, and love. You see, interruptions happen in our lives all the time, and my guess is that we don't like them, right? We like routine, we like predictable, We like consistent, or at least this is me. I don't know how many of you are in this boat, but we don't like when our agenda is changed. But Jesus welcomes interruptions, and he has a purpose for each one. He never lets his compassion for others to be overtaken. Um, This reminds me, there's a great phrase that our high school students learn when we go on the St. Louis trip, and I'm sure there's some here that have been on that trip. And the phrase is this, people over projects. Because it can be tempting to get so focused on you know, painting the fence or weeding out the garden that you completely neglect the elderly widow sitting in her lawn chair who, who owns the garden. And the lesson there is that people are more important than the project. 
But this is so hard because we get so focused, right? We get so honed in on our agendas, our to-do lists, and we completely ignore what's around us. We see this even showing itself because of our sin. We get so self-focused. But in this story, we see the tenderness, we see the compassion of Christ and how he deals in his dealing with both Jairus and this bleeding woman. And you see, the reason for this interruption in the life of Christ is because sin is rearing its ugly head. Sin has brought so much misery and trouble in this life. And in Luke 8, it's shown itself in sickness and even in death. And so as we live our lives, we can easily lose hope, can't we? We can lack faith because we look at our situations from a limited human perspective. And we fear at times, God, have you forgotten me? Or worse yet, God, do you even care about what's going on? But what we see this morning in Luke 8, I hope, is encouragement, this reminder that because God is powerful over sin and he delights in showing compassion to his children, that we can trust him, that he's at work in our lives, that he is growing our faith, and that he is taking away our fears. And so let's look at this very first word I mentioned, desperation, and where we see this in this uh, text. Desperation in the face of sickness and death. So beginning in verse 40 again, Jesus is returned. He's returned to a crowd that's happy to welcome him, which is interesting because there's a contrast here in where he previously was in the chapter. He was with crowds that were pushing him away. He cast out a demon and the crowds were a bit freaked out, right? And so they tell Jesus to leave in verse 37. It says this, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were all seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. So Jesus sails back across the Sea of Galilee and he finds crowds welcoming him, waiting for him. And then we see this first interruption of desperation from this ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. Now Jairus was likely a very well-respected, prominent figure in the culture as he held a high position in the synagogue. And he approaches Jesus and he takes a posture of humility. He falls down at his feet. And this is a posture of submission, of even desperation. And he implores Jesus to come to his house because his child, his one and only child of 12 years of age is dying. And for those of you who are parents, you know this feeling. You know this feeling, you know when your kids suffer how helpless and how powerless you can sometimes feel. You, like you wish you could do something, but at times you just can't. Now, I know many of you will remember this story a couple years ago when my son Calvin broke his leg playing football in a playoff game for Free State in Derby, Kansas, which I don't ever want to go back to Derby anymore. Sorry if you're from there, but bad memories. It was nearing the end of the third quarter. He's a left tackle, and as the ball was snapped, something happened with his left cleat. It slipped out, defense came at him, and he broke his leg with the weight of the other guy and his weight, tibia, fibula, spiral fracture. It was not good. So he comes off the field, and the trainer immediately looks up to mom and dad, like, come down. This is trouble. And so we got in the car, and we immediately took off. Well, actually, it was Papa Jim's car. Thank you for being here and helping us. We had to drive two and a half hours back to Lawrence, Kansas, while this kid had a broken leg. And I tell you what, it was probably one of the longest, saddest car rides. I mean, yeah, we gave him ibuprofen, but it was just so helpless to see him struggle 
in pain. It was the worst feeling. And if you have a child that's experienced this, you know this, the love of a parent for a child when, when they're hurt, it's desperate. And Jairus is there. This is where he's feeling. And surely he's heard of Jesus. Surely he's maybe seen what Jesus has done. So he goes to him. He implores him. And what was Jesus' response? He starts walking. He starts walking. He heads to his house. And it's here on the way to Jairus' house that we meet another interruption of desperation. We encounter this woman who'd been subject to hemorrhaging for over 12 years of her life. And it's important to understand the, the ritual purity laws that this woman was subject to with this kind of disease. You can read about it in Leviticus 15, where God instructs Moses and Aaron of the regulations or the laws for how to deal with men and women that have bodily discharges. And this is not only a woman with discharge, sorry, not only is the woman with a discharge of blood unclean, but she's also not allowed to worship in the temple. And anything she touches becomes unclean. I mean, you can imagine she would have lived a very lonely, isolated life. She was an outsider. She was most likely lived a solitary life in her condition. She'd spent all the money that she had on doctors which were unable to find a cure for her. So she lost all her health, she lost her wealth, she lost her status in the community, and probably her self-worth, her identity, right? Was wrapped up as a bleeding woman, diseased. Now these Old Testament laws, they may seem harsh, but the, the whole idea behind it is that a holy God can only be worshiped by a holy people. And so God made provisions in his kindness, like these laws to protect the Israelite worshipers from being made unclean. And so he instituted sacrifices so that people could come into the presence of God and be restored with him. So the intention of Leviticus 15 is to exclude impure people from the realm of the sacred as a protection. And this actually was very common in ancient Near East cultures like Israel to ascribe impurity to various bodily discharges. You see this in Egyptian and Hittite, Assyrian and Babylonian societies as well. God is making provision so that someone who is unclean would not die from it. In Leviticus 15, 31, it says, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. And think about it this way, like in today's culture, we would discourage someone with a weakened immune system from entering a hospital, if they didn't have to, obviously, because they might contract an illness while there. And only an unsympathetic person would interpret this suggestion as oppressive, right? Rather, it's a defensive effort motivated with a desire to protect such people. Or we know this a bit from our experience through the COVID pandemic. We became way too acquainted with words like quarantine and isolation, and exposure, right? How many times do we say those throughout the day? And if you got COVID, what would you do? You would have to isolate in a room or a basement until you recovered. A week, maybe, in a bedroom or a basement all by yourself seemed difficult, but 12 years of being isolated. Think about that. 12 years, this woman was unable to worship in the synagogue. Think about the effect that would have on your soul. So this woman thought, Maybe if I can just sneak up in this large crowd unnoticed and touch the hem of his garment and then just be lost again in the crowd, that I could find help and healing. 
Because again, like Jairus, maybe she had heard about what Jesus had done or seen what he had done. And so here we have a desperate, diseased woman, and we have a desperate father of a dying daughter. And we look at our own lives, and sadly, some of us can relate. We've known the feeling of desperation when the doctor comes back with the test results. We know the loneliness that suffering can bring as you feel like everyone else might be doing just fine, but I've got this issue. Or perhaps it could be desperation financially or relationally as you long for a relationship to be restored or a prodigal child to return home to Jesus. See, to some degree or another, we have all felt this desperation because we live in a sinful world. And chances are that if we don't relate to the depth, perhaps, of these people's suffering in Luke 8, we probably have people in our lives who are in desperation, battling things like cancer, chronic fatigue, illness. We share that. We shoulder that. We pray with, we pray for them, and we take the example of Jairus and this bleeding woman. What do we do? We seek Jesus. We seek Jesus, as we've done already this morning in our prayers That's the desperation that we all, that we all are familiar with. And next in this story, we see the drama of what happens, drama of a life in a world filled with sin. Verse 44, you can read along with me. So Jesus, or sorry, so she came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Notice this fascinating symbol, symbolism of a reversal of the flow of power. This this is fascinating to me. Where is the power flowing in this scene? She touches Jesus. Actually, she doesn't even touch him. She touches the hem, or technically the tassel of his garment, and something amazing happens. Instead of Jesus becoming ritually unclean because of her condition, the power flows the other way. The power reverses with Jesus. Healing, purifying power flows from Jesus to this woman rather than the unclean, diseased power flowing from the woman to make Jesus unclean. Friends, don't miss this. Jesus is powerful over sin and sickness. He is pure. He is clean. And a mere touch of his garment was powerful enough to stop 12 years of uncleanness. And we, you and I, have access to so much more than just the hem of Jesus' garment. We have access to Jesus by his spirit, to the very throne room of grace as we pray, as we seek him, as we ask him for help and healing. And he knows when we call upon him. He knew when someone touched the hem of his garment even, when he was in a crowd, like crowded people all around him. It was like a, like a court storming at a KU basketball game. Well, actually, KU's probably a bad example because we don't storm the court. It would be like a K-State basketball game (laughs) where where people storm the court when they win. And think of the crowds, right? Pressing upon Jesus. And yet he knew when someone touched him. Because he asks, who touched me? And he asks not only for his benefit, but he's asking, I think, for hers and even for our benefit. Everyone around him then denied it. And as you would suspect, Peter speaks first, as is his tendency, and he says, Jesus, there are so many people around you, everyone is touching you. But that's not what Jesus is referring to here. He was referring to a touch of faith. 
Not just a physical touch. Verse 46. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. See, in that moment, it's as as if all the light around the crowds just went dark, and then this giant spotlight shines on this woman, right? She can't hide anymore. Her, Her identity, it's revealed, right? And she then assumes the same posture as Jairus does. What does she do? She falls down at his feet. And then Jesus does a beautiful thing. He draws out her profession of faith in verse 47 and 48. We don't know what she said, but here is what happens. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And now two things happen in this moment. First, the obvious, right? There's a miracle. Like her body was restored. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. But I think there's a second thing that happens here. Her identity is restored. Jesus calls her a name. He says, daughter. Think about that. What were all the names that had been called of this woman? And what were even the names she was telling herself? Her identity was the unclean, bleeding woman, but not anymore. She was called daughter of the Most High God. She belongs to him now. She's in his family. And to make sure she wasn't believing in that just by touching the hem of Jesus' garment was like this magic trick, Jesus makes sure she knew that it was her faith that healed her. Faith in the only one who can take a desperate, unclean, broken, and even broke, (laughs) diseased person and heal them and restore them to the family. And this is an amazing picture of our lives apart from Jesus and then our lives after being called by God and having hearts regenerated, having been given faith, been justified, and being adopted into the family of God. We are that woman apart from Christ. We try to rely on so many other things and find relief in so many other things that cure us potentially of our disease. Some run to various religions or empty philosophies of life to try and find healing. Some run to substances and waste money and time trying to cover up the real problem or finding an escape. And some are simply unwilling to just fall down at the feet of the Savior because they have to prove themselves. I can stand on my own two feet. I can do this. And that's not the posture of the gospel. Apart from Christ, we are that woman. We're sick, we're estranged from God, we're isolated, and we really do have nowhere else to turn. But then God does something miraculous. He gives us the gift of faith by which we apprehend all the blessings and joys of salvation in Jesus. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith, this is what pleases God, Hebrews 11.6. Faith is what releases the grace of God in your life. Do you want deliverance? From your disease of sin, come to Jesus, believing. Come desperately determined to touch him. And if your faith is weak, cry out like the man in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. But there's a flip side to this drama as well. Things turned out well for this woman, but it doesn't always turn out well 
for everyone. I put that in air quotes in case you didn't see that. It doesn't always turn out well. We have to remember this, that every promised grace will not be received in this age. Every promised grace may not be received in this age. In fact, I believe most blessings are being saved for the life to come. And if you believe in Jesus, here's what we know we have. We can receive sufficient grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And God will help you in your time of need. Hebrews 4, 16, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So trust him and take hold of all the blessings of God by faith. You see, after this woman was healed, the drama only increases because now we focus back on the original situation with the daughter of Jairus. While Jesus is still speaking with the woman, perhaps in dialogue, maybe with the disciples around him, we don't know what they were talking about, he gets interrupted again. And this time, someone comes to deliver sad news that this little girl has died. Uh, Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. Hope now seems lost as they conclude that it's just a bother now to Jesus. So let's leave him alone. Can you imagine what was going through Jairus' mind in this moment? No doubt, immense sadness upon hearing this news, sorrow, perhaps even anger at Jesus, taking so much time to interact with this bleeding woman when he could have maybe made it to the house faster to save his daughter. I mean, this sounds similar to Mary and Martha in John 11, right? As we heard on Easter Sunday preached the death of Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, upon hearing word that Lazarus has died, Jesus chose to stay where he was another two days. And then when he finally shows up, both Mary and Martha lay into him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They're looking at it from a limited human perspective and Jesus sees it otherwise. You guys, Jesus always has a plan. His comment about Lazarus, it's similar to his comment we, we've read about in this, about this 12-year-old girl. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then he later clarifies, Lazarus is dead. And in a similar way, Jesus tells the crowd of mourners in the house of Jairus, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And this word sleep is often used in the Bible to refer to death for the believer because death is not the final word. Death is not the final word for the believer in Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we look at this word, or as we look at how Paul talks about death in this chapter, I'm just going to pick a couple verses as we go through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. We look at verse 6. Paul is talking about the resurrection of Christ. And in verse six, he says, then he, then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then look down at verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then skip all the way down to verse 51. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And then also we won't turn there, but 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, while death is our final enemy, it's not the end for the believer. For the believer in Jesus, it is the beginning of life in the presence of God. And Jesus took this girl by the hand and he said, child, arise. And all were amazed at this because she comes back to life. He proves yet again that he is God in flesh, the only one with power to raise the dead. And then we witness another amazing thing happen. Jesus is not unclean. He's just touched a dead corpse and Jesus is not unclean. The same Old Testament ritual purity laws that apply to bodily discharges apply to contact with the dead even. If you're quick, you can turn there to Numbers 5. In the Old Testament, Numbers 5 verses 1 through 4 says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside of the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. See, Jesus does not become unclean when he touches the bleeding woman, when he brings this dead body back to life. No, they become clean. They become alive because they've encountered the one true God. This roller coaster drama, think of the beginning, Jairus in desperation coming to Jesus and then the sadness of finding out his daughter's dead to now the joy of seeing her raised back to life. This is such a picture of the drama of our lives living in a world of sin. I mean, how are we to live then in light of this? One commentator put it this way. He said, we tend to trust God in our urgency, but do we still trust God in our hopelessness? So where do you turn when you're hopeless? Do you heed the commands of Jesus as he said in verse 50, do not fear, only believe. See, we belong to a savior who is powerful over disease and who is powerful over even death. Now, not all of us may experience the suffering of disease in this life. Some of us don't get cancer, but many of us do experience suffering through disease and sickness. But here's one thing we all experience, and that's death. Death does not discriminate. It comes to all, the rich, the poor, the beautiful, the young, the old, the wise, the foolish, everyone. But for those who trust and for those who believe in Jesus, what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.10 is true, that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul quotes the prophets in saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the things that happened in Jairus' house are a picture for us of the good things to come. Jesus will raise his voice and speak 
to call all people from their graves and gather them together to be with him forevermore. Christ will unite the entire family together in our great home in heaven where all tears will be wiped from our eyes. This is the drama of redemption, the drama that is our lives, the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, all of it with the end in mind, that death will be swallowed up in victory because of what Christ has done. Here's the amazing thing, that for all those who are in Christ, who believe and trust in him for salvation, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, as it's been said. It's basically proof that we too will be raised on that last day as we are in him. Um, We read about it this morning in our profession of faith. Um, In God's providence, we're reading question 57 today. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And we read, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ, reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. We said that together because it's true. Because it's true. It will happen. And then that brings us to our final word, deliverance. Deliverance by a powerful and compassionate Savior. Jesus tells us this tale of two daughters, really, this daughter of Jairus and this daughter of faith to show us that Jesus is powerful to deliver us. Jesus came to earth to deliver us. How? He was sent by God the Father to be born, to live, to walk this earth in sinless perfection and to eventually die of substitutionary death for us on the cross in our place. He took the punishment we deserved because we're all sinners. And he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, and now has ascended into heaven, as we heard last week in Evan's sermon, the implication of the ascension. And as he ascended, he sits now at the Father's right hand, where he will come again at a date, TBA, to be announced. And he will judge, and he will gather all those who are his. This is the amazing act of deliverance God did when he sent his son Jesus, full of power and full of compassion. Now, we do not know what happened to this woman after she was healed after this incident, but I would expect her life was radically changed, right? Her life looked totally different. And I assume the same would be true of this 12-year-old girl. I was thinking about this potentially funny scenario. Like she maybe, you know, would go visit another youth group growing up, maybe as she was 16, 17 years old, and, you know, like somehow... Sometimes youth groups do, like you play this little icebreaker game, like two truths and a lie or something. Hand out note cards. (laughs) Sorry, this is where my brain goes sometimes. So go with me. And like she writes down, you know, my dad is a famous, big time synagogue ruler, number one. You know, because you have to say two truths, then you have to lie, and then everybody said, guess. I've never ridden a camel. I don't know, I assume it's pretty common. Maybe that was weird, that could throw people off. I was raised from the dead when I was 12. And you would think, oh, everybody would be like, that's the lie. She'd be like, no. Like, this has radically changed my life. And she would always win at that game. Um, (laughs) Anyway, all right. This girl's testimony point is, like, it would go with her, right, the rest of her life. This would be her story until she died again. (laughs) But Jesus delivers. This is the message. This is the testimony that they have, these, this woman and this girl, and that we have 
who trust in Christ. This is our testimony that Christ delivers us, that he cares about the situations in our life, that he's not absent, but he actually is at work in his timing, intervening in power at just the right moment. And it could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be another 12 years. But will you trust him in faith? Will you fall at his feet? Will you by faith take hold of the blessing of going to Jesus? So interrupt him just as you are in your sickness, in your loneliness, in your hopelessness. Come fall at his feet. Hmm. This picture before us of the table is a reminder of the deliverance we have in Christ as a very tangible reminder as we receive the bread and the cup. We're delivered because God is powerful over sin, over sickness, over death, and he shows compassion to his children. Thus, we can trust him that he is working in our lives to grow our faith and to take away our fear. And he will do that in the providence of his timing as we walk with him by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an amazing moment there that happened between you and Jairus and his family and this woman and just shows to us how powerful you are and how compassionate you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would live with faith strengthened today, knowing that whatever situation we are facing, that we are encountering in our life, that you are with us, that you long actually to be interrupted by us as we seek you, as we ask for help, as we come falling at your feet. I pray, God, that you would work in power in our lives. And most of all, strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen our faith. Help us to walk with you faithfully. Give us grateful hearts that Jesus, you have You've done this. You have lived in our place. You have died in our place. And so we can rest and trust in you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.